Hey everybody, this is Kale from Zero Tolerance Gluten-Free Homebrew Club, and I have Ben Accord from Evasion Brewing with us. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So um, I wanted to talk about Evasion and uh, and your operation, but before we get into that, um, can you just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in brewing and how you came to become uh, a pro brewer? Uh, yeah, it was a, a change of career option. I was a delivery driver for a children's hospital in San Diego, and I had an injury where I couldn't do that anymore. Um, so I had the opportunity to change careers, and the state of California paid for me to change careers um, and get assistance. Um, so I started going to San Diego State University in the business of craft beer and the business of wine program. And from there, they put me in a internship at a uh, small brew pub called Urban Street Brewing. Uh, they have pizza places in San Diego. That's where I got started brewing professionally. And then from there, I started home brewing. So you actually <laughs> kind of came into it the opposite of most people, right? It sounds like that you kind of started on the pro end of the spectrum through school. Tell us a little bit about, I'm not familiar about, I know that San Diego has a really big craft beer uh, uh, industry. Um, it, tell us a little bit about San Diego State University and that program. Is that a pretty big craft beer kind of uh, program? And, uh, and, and is that a big, big deal down there? Yeah, it's, a, it's like the perfect program to get you introduced into the industry. Maybe not directly in brewing beer, um, but the entire industry as a whole to where it's the business side of it, the distribution, the marketing, uh, the styles of beer, um, selling it, sales, anything you could ever imagine to do with beer, including brewing. That's how uh, they just encompass every aspect of it. And so a lot of people in San Diego, craft beer people have attended one or more classes at this at San Diego State. And the classes are taught by industry professionals in the city. That's awesome that you could, as a career change, go into a program like that. And um, and I guess that if you didn't have that opportunity, you probably wouldn't end up where you were today, right? No, absolutely not. Yeah. It's definitely not of, if I didn't take that class or that program, I wouldn't have ended up here. That's for sure. That's really cool. Yeah. So uh, from that craft beer program, I'm sure it was not uh, gluten-free related, right? So how did you come to the gluten-free side of the equation in terms of uh, brewing from that program and, and, and where you are now? Um, well, it was started off once I got brewing professionally, uh, my brother-in-law asked me to do a gluten-free beer, see if it was possible. He lived up here in Oregon. And I was down there and I thought, sure, why not? And so once I started doing that a little bit, I had used kind of go down a rabbit hole and there was not much information on how to do a gluten-free beer. So it took a lot of work and trial and error and a lot of bad beer to finally come up with one good beer. So let, let's step back. So I don't think we really got a, a perspective of how long ago that was and what, uh, the realm in the realm of what was available because a lot of 
brewers like myself included have only been doing it for a few years and we're used to uh, grouse and Eckert's and all these different malts that we can choose from that get us delivered right to our house from different, uh, you know, gluten-free home brewing and whatnot. Um, and I'm sure you get those malts directly from those uh, malt houses. But when you started doing that, I'm guessing that wasn't exactly the case. No, it was, that wasn't wildly or widely available yet. Um, it just started coming available, I think, uh, maybe after a year of me messing around, but so this is about maybe six or seven years ago. Uh, the first batch of beer uh, to mimic a stout was something made with rice I toasted to various levels of lightly toasted to ro roasted really dark, but then also utilizing flavors that you would find in a stout. So using cocoa nibs, coconut, uh, vanilla, and then different flavors to just try and mimic an alcoholic liquid that tasted like a stout. So did you have a lot of moments where you were like, you tasted it and you're like, Oh, like, Oh, <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of other people, friends of mine and brewing peers who tasted it and they were absolutely confused by what they were tasting. That's it. That's, I think that, yeah, that's, I think at the heart of the, you know, Oh, our home brew club, for instance, is a lot of our experimentation and it gets to the extremes, I think, sometimes where um, I think it's in the nature of um, the gluten free brewing, um, you know, community that it's just kind of like an experimental type of thing. And, and people try all sorts of things. I think as brewing as a whole, that's that's generally the case. But in gluten free brewing, it's like you have to kind of pave your own way specifically in that in that, that category right yeah and it's in my own mind I feel like I had to write my own book on how to brew gluten-free beer for me I everyone yeah. seems to do it a little bit different uh, but for me and how I knew how to brew which was brewing barley based beers I was trying to adapt gluten-free beers to that and that provided a lot of obstacles for me I had nothing else to start with except just basic brewing. So that was my reference point. Yeah. So give us an overview of evasion itself, uh, the nuts and bolts, the, where you located, uh, how long you've been around, how big of an operation it is. Uh, what's, what are the, the details on the brewery itself? Um, yeah. So we got started, I think it was March of 2017. We got approved by the TTB. It's a seven barrel brew house with a couple seven barrel fermenters, uh, some 15 barrel fermenters, as well as a small little barrel aging mixed culture program I do. Um, and that's kind of it. Just started mostly off as draft, but we ended up realizing that package was gonna be an important way to make sure the beer gets around as uh, best possible. So I always like to ask this question about the the name, right? So um, some names are pretty obvious, like Beerly Brewing is from JP's name, uh, but others maybe not so obvious. So uh, tell us about the name and like, did did you uh, did you toss around a million names before you settled on this one? How did that whole process work? Uh, yeah, it's, there's not many original ideas left out there, so start off with all kinds of names and worked its way to evading gluten. So 
running away from gluten essentially, so evading and then turned into evasion as more of a, just a standalone name. Nice. And then, so you've been around for a couple of years, right? So how has the brewery changed in those couple of years? Have, have you, you know, changed from an equipment perspective from, I know that you've moved from bottles to cans. Tell us a little bit about maybe how that, how you've seen a change within your brewery over the last few years from when you opened to where you are now. For the most part, it's all the same equipment. I mean, you put it on the head there, the start off with a bottling line. And then now we've gone to a canning line, which makes the qualities a lot higher in cans. Uh, there's no light getting to it, it's better sealed. Um, so it's much more stable and customers seem to really enjoy it too, having the ability to put in cans. But in that, it's the same equipment we started from with. Nice. It's funny, like when I was growing up, I always used to think canned beer was the shitty, like, Budweiser beer, right? And then the bottles were all the craft, really super yummy beer, right? This was back when I didn't, uh, you know, I was still drinking barley beers, right? But, and I said, I think that now you go to the stores and you see a shift where a lot of the craft beers uh, have canning lines or have cannery, uh, uh, canneries come to their, their locations and can their beers, whereas that didn't happen before, right? So there's a, it's a little bit of a separation between the macro and the micro breweries, right? Yep. The The mobile canning line really changed, I think, the craft beer industry as a yeah. whole. Yeah. So you're down there and it's in McMinnville, right? Yep. And um, McMinnville is, I've never been to McMinnville. I want to go. And I've, I know it's known for being uh, wine country, right? So Tell us about uh, what that's like having a brewery in wine country, not only a brewery, but a gluten-free brewery. And then how does that influence uh, your, your brewing, right? Having that wine culture right nearby. Well, I really enjoy wine. Uh, one thing I want to be a winemaker before I ever wanted to be a brewer, if I had to choose between the two, but brewing presented itself as the opportunity. So that is where I went to. Uh, but I still like the aspect of making wine. And so I'm personally heavily influenced by uh, the region where we live at, which is we're just surrounded by vineyards and orchards of fruit and anything like that. It's such a great place to uh, live when it comes to having access to fruit and to use in brewing and just to eating in general, it's good. So when I go about wanting to make a more unique beer, I try to utilize as much of the local uh, produce, if you will, as possible uh, and taking influence from just the valley that we live in, which has peaches and plums and pears, but then also all the different kind of grape varietals you could ever imagine. So when we do a beer like Yam Hill Punch, I try to make sure all the ingredients are sourced within the county to the best of my ability and then using wild yeast that comes off the fruit to ferment the beers. So just really trying to give people that sense of terroir uh, that is very popular in wine, but trying to give some of that back to beer. Nice, it reminds me of like the whole farm to table concept of some yeah. you know fancy restaurants where they have you know all the ingredients they source from the local region, right? It sounds like you have a lot of opportunity to um, procure that, that type of, uh, you know, fruits and whatever from the local region, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, the some of the that's probably one of the funnest point parts of the job is meeting all the different growers and farmers and winemakers and just talking with them, flushing out ideas, and then collaborating with some of them too to make something that's pretty unique. Nice. So uh, I always like to get into the technical uh, brewing. Um, um, nuts and bolts. And one of the big topics of conversation on our uh, zero tolerance Facebook page. And if you, <laughs> if anyone's watching this, uh, the most activity for our club takes place on the zero tolerance Facebook page. Uh, but is it's about mashing, right? And so everybody's got their own, um, you know, single infusion, uh, rising step mash, falling step mash, uh, and things of that nature. What's your typical philosophy around, do you stick to uh, one type of, you know, standard type of mashing activity, like a single infusion, or do you uh, do that variation based on the beer that you're brewing? For the most part, it will always be just a single infusion. Um, and then utilizing the, the same enzymes that all the gluten-free breweries use, uh, liquefaction, a sacrification enzyme, and then just keeping it kind of simple. Once again, I think it goes back to based off of what I knew, which was single infusion barley-based beers. Um, I've done the rising mash and this falling mash or whatever you want to call it. I've done both of them. And it just, the, you get a really good beer out of it, but then it's also a lot more effort it can be. Um, so I try to just keep it simple for me. And so I'll use that single infusion to get good results. So, yeah, you, we, we touched on um, enzymes. I think enzymes and mashing are probably the two most, like from a technical perspective, like um, mythical um, unicorn conversations when it comes to gluten-free beer. And um, there's been conversations lately about uh, enzymes like Ondia Pro, which is used for, uh, it's, it was, created for unmalted barley right but it seems to fit a use case for ferment for uh creating a um fermentable sugars out of you know um the uh grains that we use like millet and rice rice specifically so um from an enzymes perspective are you using like the kind of standard uh do you do you use the standard ones that a, a home brewer would use or do you have access to all sorts of crazy uh enzymes that i mean there's access to them yeah for the most part it's the same stuff you get off of uh gluten-free home brewing just yeah. big quantities of it comes in uh one gallon jerry cans as opposed to Instead, of, instead of like a little tiny teaspoon you're dumping like a huge amount in there <laughs> yeah exactly uh, <laughs> Ondia pro is great i've used that plenty of times nice nice so what about um you had mentioned um the single infusion mash was something that um you like to do because you know some of the other techniques just take a lot of time and and I think that brings us to a great conversation about uh, what the differences are between home brewing and brewing as a business, right? So when you're brewing as a business, what do you see as, and you kind of came into it a little bit differently, right? Because you had um, kind of been, went through schooling and then had kind of a pro brewing experience, but from things like 
uh, ingredient costs, thinking about distribution, um, the time that you have to experiment, um, your mashing schedules. What's the difference that you see between being a business and being a home brewer? Being a home brewer, it's a, you could make a really amazing beer for less than a hundred bucks. Um, you can dump a ton of vanilla beans in there, cocoa nibs. Um, this doesn't matter if it's gluten-free or not. This is just any brewing. You can make a really incredible beer. But then once you scale that up to 500 gallons, that one vanilla bean you might put in five gallons now becomes 90 vanilla beans. And 90 vanilla beans might cost you over $1,000. And so you're like, well, I can't really make that work on scaling that up. So then you have to adapt different ways to how you're adding the flavor into it. Um, either you letting it soak or are you just doing it? There's just lots of different techniques. You got to get a little more creative to make sure the beer is actually feasible. Like I could make a really great beer, but no one's going to buy a $50 bottle of beer. I mean, you could add all kinds of adjuncts in there and it just won't be feasible. Um, so you got to try and figure out that, that, that point where you're actually going to get something from the return. It seems like that some of the, and if you can extract the maximum amount of sugars from, from those grains, then you're going to end up, if you're, if you're scaling up in yeah. the sizes, then that could be a big savings. If a certain enzyme can allow you to increase your efficiency oh, yeah. by 5%, that's a huge savings to you, right? Yeah. I mean, if you can limit one 50 pound bag out of a batch, that could be a savings of uh, 150 to $200 per batch. And then over time, over the course of a year, if you're doing that, that's a huge amount of savings, right? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So you think about what that bag that's maybe three or four less cases of beer that would have to be sold to make up for that one bag. And then what goes into selling those four cases of beer? It takes a lot of sales work and gas and time to sell those four cases. So as, as a prop, I went to Total Wine in Seattle and can you see this? There you go. You got one of the last ones left. This bad boy right here. So Ben, I got to ask you, right? How the fuck do you make a 13% gluten-free beer? First of all, and is there is, and this was, it was not $50, but Expensive, <laughs> I know that I, I, you for I had to, I have to ask is, is there crack cocaine in this as well? <laughs> there is none of that. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's basically, I mean, what's interesting about, uh, what I like about the gluten-free brewing is that when we have to brew beer and put a label on it, we've got to put all the ingredients in there. So there's no secrets in there. So in regular brewing, like barley-based brewing, I mean, you would use adjuncts to ramp up alcohol, but you don't, there's a certain point of where you're going to get a return on that for flavor and alcohol to help make the beer better. But if you overuse some of that, like sugars, like snap beer, there's a dextrose in there. And that's just to give it a little bit of an alcohol bump. It, that doesn't make up 5% of the alcohol. That probably makes up half percent to 1%, but it's just a little bit to get more extract out of the barrels when it soaks in there. Um, and the barrels themselves can, in some instances, you can get a barrel, there's nothing in the barrel, but after it soaks for a year, you can jump up a percent 
percent and a half in alcohol. It'll just soak it right out of the wood. Wow. So yeah. That's and it just takes a long time. So on those beers, the mashing is takes many many hours. It's not necessarily a single infusion with that beer because I want every single piece of sugar I can get out of there essentially. So are you telling us that you may use a multi-step mash for these super fancy beers? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. <laughs> There'll be some, some, some multi-steps in there to make sure I get every little thing I can out of it. This, this bottle, I'd went, I'd gone to this total wine before and I did not buy the bottle. And then I went back a second time and I, it was the last one on the shelf and I could not resist the call. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> It was just voted the 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 rated the number one beer in Oregon. Oh, nice! Well, magazine. Awesome. So nice, nice. Of and that's not just gluten free beers. That's, that's all beers. All beers in Oregon. It was in rated Oregon. number one. That's amazing. That's so awesome. That was pretty exciting to get that email from Sip Magazine. Oh, that's really cool. Pretty dumbfounded. You're like, what? <laughs> exactly. Are you sure? <laughs> so what about um um advice that you would have since you know our our club is a homebrew club right but there's a lot of people that have maybe aspirations of moving from homebrewer to brewing professionally um what advice do you have for someone in the gluten-free community someone someone like that's on the zero tolerance facebook page that is thinking about trying to move to that next step of either being maybe a contract brewer or moving into you know having their own uh, brew house um say the biggest thing is really identify your market just if that beer if you don't have a market for gluten-free it's really going to be a tough sell because it's going to cost more than someone's regular beer um, so doing some legwork to make sure that if it's gonna be a small brew pub area or like just surfacing your local neighborhood, that there's an actual market for it. Because if there's not, it's gonna fail. And that can be just said of any kind of brewery. If no one's drinking craft beer, no one wants to spend more for it, it's just gonna fail. Um, that would be one of the most important things is to really do that early research to identify, is there a market for it? Um, and if that will keep you going. And then the next thing it seems would be is a great way to avoid a lot of the startup costs would be to contract out. You have to do more legwork when it comes to cleaning the tanks and it wouldn't be necessarily a, it wouldn't be a beer brewed in a dedicated facility, but it would be done in a, it would be a gluten-free beer or made with gluten-free ingredients and gluten-friendly, uh, but it wouldn't have the enzymes, but then you got to make sure you test those beers afterwards, but it can, saving yourself that hassle of all the permitting and the time and the costs associated with starting a brewery can be avoided because a lot of breweries, craft breweries around the country, they have tank space. It's, they might have tanks just sitting empty right now. And so why not support them and then help get your own thing rolling? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's great advice. And I, I think whether we've, there's a number of, uh, people that are in that position where they are contract brewing or starting to contract brew. So I think that's, I mean, I guess in the craft beer industry, that's a pretty common type of thing to have happen mm -hmm. before you make the leap. Right. 
So. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just a way to soften the blow of starting up a brewery because opening up a brewery is is not cheap. Um, it's, it takes a lot of time and investments, uh, so it can just make it a little bit easier to get started and make it less scary. <laughs> like here's all my money. Exactly. <laughs> no, here's half my money, right? <laughs> well, speaking of that, uh, for your, uh, for evasion, um, how has has the pandemic affected um, evasion? I know I see on your website that says that you're closed until further notice. Um, but I've heard from some other, you know, gluten-free breweries that it may not be so bad because if you still have distribution, there's still a lot of activity in terms of uh, canning and bottling and getting those out to the store. So how has how has that affected your your business? Uh, we do really well with our distribution getting it out to uh, Washington and Oregon. But then the direct consumer shipping that we have is we've really been able to reach a lot more customers during this time. And then people are, when they do come in, they make an appointment to pick up beer, they place the order online. And so they're getting much more beer right now and still doing some of the creative things, make some small batches, can it. And so they still get variety coming in that they can order, which is nice. Uh, the tasting room, hopefully we'll be able to open that soon, but it's just one of those things right now. We're trying to make sure we have enough beer going and variety before it gets opened. So that's been doing a lot of brewing and a lot of selling of beer now. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So last one for you before we let you go. So, um, I always like to, you know, um, ask what you see in terms of, you know, where your brewery is going to be in the next five or 10 years. Do you see it just like you want it just to be the right size it is now? You want to take over the world and brew uh, the best gluten-free Pilsner that's ever been made? Uh, what's your what's your vision like do you want to be in all 50 states and have a huge operation and like hundreds of employees or uh, or do you like it just nice and small like it is now what do you see as a vision for the next few years I think the the best thing I could hope for thankfully I don't have to worry about a lot of those problems I just brew the beer so I get to be creative and brew stuff and just keep making beers that people want to drink and then if people want to drink it they're going to buy it and that will just increase demand. And the more demand there is, the farther we can distribute the beer, the more people can get it. It's a very gratifying thing to get emails or text messages from people on Instagram uh, or Facebook. Just they finally get to have a gluten-free beer that they've never had before in their town because maybe someone bought them a six pack of it or they bought a bottle of it and they're just like, mind blowing that they finally get something that they had never had before. So it'd be so great to service more people like that who are in, I don't know, little gluten-free wastelands or something, barren wastelands in their state or in their county in Kansas or something like that. Just yeah, trying to yeah. get, however it may be, getting our beer and just gluten-free beer in general out to more and more people who are looking for it, but they just can't get it. 
And as of right now, I'm just looking at your website. You can now ship beer within Oregon to Virginia and DC. And then you also distribute to Washington and Oregon, right? Through um, those distributors. So if you want to find the Evasions beer, then those are the locations you can get that now. And then hopefully in the future, maybe other states. I know that the the laws for each state are very uh, weird. Very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> uh, easy thing that's for sure yeah so but you can find evasion brewing beers there um and i've had a, a bunch of your beers and i'm hoping to go down to mcvenville and and go into the tap room whenever that opens back up and i really actually i really appreciate you joining us today yeah. and i want to thank you for uh, evasion brewing for for joining us and um, just remember, no barley, no wheat, no rye, no problem. There you go. <laughs> Cheers. <Let's> go. <laughs> <laughs>